Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Carolyn Sperry Fox on May 22, 2022. Carolyn is a professional musician, published author, and painter. She was principal viola with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, based in Edinburgh, and a member of the BBC Orchestra. She wrote a play called Threads, which she was able to produce, which then turned into a book called The Half of It Was Never Told, Three Men, Three Continents, one passion. She's also written two children's books called Little Acorn and Abdul Baha's Little Brown Cat. I started the interview by asking Carolyn where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born and brought up in Keswick in the English Lake District, where my parents had fled to from London at the start of the Second World War. They were both very strong Christians, and and so I used to go to church every Sunday right through my childhood. Through my parents' involvement in moral rearmament, I was encouraged to focus my life on what are known as the four absolute standards. That's honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, which has certainly been very useful signposts as I've gone through my life. You mentioned your parents were involved with an organization called Moral Rearmament. Can you describe that for us? It was started by a man called Frank Buchman. He was an American. In 1908, he was at a convention in England, and he had a spiritual enlightenment in a little church. As a result of that, he started this movement. At the time, when he first started, it was called the Oxford Group. Then it changed, and I think it was in the 50s, it changed to moral rearmament. But it really encourages people, or it did encourage people, to focus on what is right and not who is right. And for Christians, for religious people, to focus on what God wants of us and for us. And is this moral rearmament movement still exists? It exists, uh, but it's got a different name now. It's called Initiatives of Change. So I understand, Carolyn, that music was a big part of your life growing up and that you studied music and became a professional musician. Can you describe that process for us? Both my parents were very musical. My mother was a very good pianist and my father, who was a dentist, played the cello. We were both accepted to play with the prestigious National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And then when I was 17, I won a scholarship to study at the Royal Academy of Music in London. One of my very first professional engagements was a two-month coast-to-coast tour of North America with the then very famous countertenor called Alfred Della. And on my return, I began my career proper in London. I worked with some of the top orchestras and chamber groups, including the Academy of St. Martins in the Field, the English Chamber Orchestra, the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and with the great violinist Yehudi Menuhin, with whom I toured Australia, New Zealand, and North America. 
a complete contrast to all that, was playing in the first London production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which I absolutely loved. I really enjoyed doing that. I moved to Scotland and became principal viola with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, which was a wonderful job with amazing work. And the other musicians were a wonderful company of people to work with. There was a lot of touring into Eastern Europe before the Berlin Wall came down, across America and Western Europe, and into remote parts of Scotland, including the islands. We were also involved in recording and television. But I then left the Scottish Chamber Orchestra in order to become principal viola with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, which was based in Glasgow. What was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i Faith? So as I said, I was brought up as a Christian. It was through my parents' involvement in moral rearmament that I learned to respect people of other faiths. This healthy attitude regarding religion was a really good grounding for my personal search, which actually went on until I eventually came across the Baha'i faith when I was in my 40s. So it took quite a long time. What did that pathway take you through to get there? It's quite a long story, um, and I've been searching for a long time, and I've been trying various churches and always thinking that there was something missing, and I had questions. And then one day, I was, I was working for the BBC, and one day I was sitting with another viola player, because I was a viola player, who was a born-again Christian. And she happened to tell me that she'd met this really nice man who read the news for the BBC, and she said to me, unfortunately, he's a Baha'i. Now, I'd never heard the word, and I just assumed it was some sort of illness. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, no, it's a, it's a religion. So I said, oh, a religion? I've never heard of that. So she told me a few things about it, and I was intrigued. So I said, well, do you think you could bring a book in for me to read? So the next day she came in with a book called Thief in the Night, which I took home and started to read. It was like being in a tunnel, and you could see the light the other end, and I knew I was going towards that light, and I, that I'd found what I was looking for, but it was going to take me a, a little while to get there. In fact, it took me about three months. After about three months, I decided that that was for me, how it became a Baha'i. So what was it about that book that took you to that place? I suppose that the main thing was the concept of progressive revelation, that uh, that religion goes through a process. It's not just this religion and that religion, and they're all disconnected, but they all follow on from one another. And I couldn't understand why I hadn't thought of that myself. So that was a real eye-opener to me, and that's what set me on my path. So you said you were in the BBC Orchestra, but then I understand you eventually resigned from the BBC Orchestra. Why was that? I'd been working for decades and decades, and viola players do suffer a lot of muscle pain and joint pain because the viola is quite a heavy instrument to hold up. And when you're playing in an orchestra, it's hours and hours, week after week, of relentless playing. and It's, it's a real battering to the body. And I'd been having a few problems, as were my fellow viola players. And I, I got into my 50s and I just thought, I think I've had enough. So I, I took early retirement. Having said that, I, I didn't stop playing. It's just that I was able to then choose what I wanted to do. 
and not batter my body anymore with this constant playing of the viola. Mm-hmm. So the viola is significantly heavier than the violin? It is heavier, mm-hmm. yes, and it's bigger. Mm-hmm. So I want to play a recording of your viola playing from the CD called Burst Thy Cage Asunder, and that you play interludes between recitations of writings of Baha'u'llah. Can you describe the CD for us? On leaving the BBC Orchestra, I plunged myself into composing, and some of the smaller compositions were centered on the Baha'i writings, including the hidden words of Baha'u'llah and the Seven Valleys, also Baha'u'llah both of which are on this CD with three poems of Tahiri. And with my husband, Jeremy, we'd spent several years travel teaching, visiting Baha'i communities in various parts of the world, including Mauritius, France, Corsica, Canada, the Faroe Islands. And we always included in our programs this music with the words, and people absolutely loved it. So we decided that we needed to make a CD of it. So that's how that came Mm. around. You mentioned Baha'u'llah's work called The Hidden Words. Can you describe just a little bit what that work is? The Hidden Words, it's it's a selection of very small sayings, almost like little poems, that are full of very deep meaning. They're very beautiful. And you also mentioned the poetess Tahare. Maybe you could explain a little bit of who she is. Tahere was one of the first people to become a follower of the Bab, who was the precursor of Baha'u'llah. The Bab announced his mission in, in 1844 in Persia, and he said he'd come to introduce, to, to prepare the way for him whom God will make manifest, who was Baha'u'llah. And Tahere was one of the very first believers in the Bab. She was a poetess, she was an extraordinary woman, and she was actually martyred for her faith. So now we'll play a little interlude that, Carolyn, you play as an example of your viola playing between these writings on the CD. We're speaking with Carolyn Sperry Fox, a professional musician and author. 
The piece we heard was an interlude between writings by Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, recorded on a CD called Burst Thy Cage Asunder. Carolyn, I understand that you branched out to a new artistic endeavor, actually more than one artistic endeavor, that was painting and writing. Was painting and writing something you discovered recently, or were these also creative outlets that you had earlier on in your life? I'd always painted and and written things from a very, very early child. I just loved doing it. And of course, when I was growing up, I didn't have enough time, really, once I was working. So once I left the BBC, I found I had time, and I plunged myself initially into painting. I did two exhibitions, actually, with my painting. And the inspiration for those were both musical compositions that I was very fond of, and also various aspects of the Baha'i Faith. For instance, I painted my interpretation of one of the hidden words, for instance. I did quite a few of those. As far as writing is concerned, I think latterly it came about by accident. When I became a Baha'i in 1992, I was fascinated by the 19th century Adventism. That's not Seventh-day Adventism. That's something different. And I decided to write a play about three prominent people who'd been involved, each of them living on a different continent. So there was William Miller, who lived in America, Joseph Bolf in Europe, and Mullah Hussein in the Middle East, in Persia, actually. The three of them didn't meet, of course. And so my play was presented as three interwoven monologues. Through my connection with the Academy of Music and Drama in Glasgow, I was able to organize several performances with student actors. And that was a really quite amazing thing to do. I look back on it and I think, gosh, did that really happen? And maybe you could give just a brief synopsis of each of those folks that you wrote about. Well, William Miller was an American from Vermont. He was a farmer. And he came to the conclusion through studying his Bible that Christ was going to return sometime between March 1843 and March 1844. That was all through studying the prophecies in the Bible. So there was a massive movement came about through his teachings. Joseph Wolf was a German. He was such an extraordinary man. His life was so eccentric that it's hard to believe sometimes that what actually happened to him really happened. But he kept journals so we know what he was like and what he did and that it's it's real he was brought up as a jew he became a christian when he was 17 and he became an adventist his date for expecting jesus's return was 1847 although a lot of people believed in 1847 and the last person mullah hussein was in persia Now, in Persia, the Shia Muslims had a similar belief that the return of the promised one, their promised one in their religion, was about to happen. It was actually the same year, 1844. I wove the stories of these three men around each other in my play as three monologues. And it ends up with Mullah Hussein because he was the one who discovered what he was looking for. Did you create a book from the play? Yes. Now, the play I called Threads, 
because these three monologues threaded around each other. The way the book came around was really through a friend of mine called Stephen Lambden, who's a Baha'i researcher. And he knew that I, I had this deep interest, particularly in Joseph Wolf. And he kept saying to me, Carolyn, you must write a book. And I said to him, I've never written a book. I, I don't think I can write a book. You must write a book, he said. Finally, I thought about it. I thought, I really don't want to go to my grave thinking I didn't write that book. So I wrote it. So it's based on those three people who were in the play. And I called the book, the half of it was never told. Would you like to read an excerpt from the book? I can certainly do that, yes. So I'm going to read you the introduction. It's just three short paragraphs. During the 19th century, a widespread movement took much of North America, Europe, and the Middle East by storm. It was the beginning of a period of great changes with travel, industry, and learning taking the world to a new level of understanding and expectation. Many people still viewed the world around them through the lens of religion, drawing strength from the writings in their holy books such as the Bible and the Quran, which influenced decision-making not only in political affairs, but also in family and community life. The prophecies in these holy books had fascinated people for centuries, pointing as they did to a time of renewal, or more particularly, the coming of the one promised in their scriptures. The books of both the Old and New Testaments as well as the Holy Quran, made reference to future events which would herald this return. And by the beginning of the 19th century, many people believed that these events were unfolding and that the promised return was imminent. From the New World, through Europe and East into Persia, thousands and thousands studied and waited, dedicating themselves to preparation for the great event. This movement became known in the West as Adventism. Of the thousands who were involved in Adventism, there were a few whose lives were truly remarkable, offering a fascinating glimpse of a period of history which has largely been forgotten. The three featured in this book lived on three different continents, and although they never met, two of them came tantalizingly close when their paths crossed in the Middle East. Only one of them found what he was looking for. William Miller, Joseph Bolt, and Mullah Hussein were their names. They came from Christian, Christian Jewish, and Muslim backgrounds. Their stories are extraordinary. We're listening to Carolyn Sperry Fox read from her book entitled The Half of It Was Never Told, which actually comes from a play that she wrote called Threads. It's about three extraordinary men during the Enlightenment period in the uh, 1800s. Carolyn, in 2018, you released another book called Seeking a State of Heaven, and this was about the German Templars. So what inspired you to write this book? When I was on my first Baha'i pilgrimage, 
I was told that the lovely houses at the bottom of the terraces on Mount Carmel had been built by the German Templars, who travelled to Haifa from Germany in the belief that Christ would return on Mount Carmel. And later on I realised that this wasn't entirely correct, and I just decided to put the record straight. That was my purpose. Was there two different German Christian movements that are being confused here? The Templars, with an A, is a completely separate group from several centuries earlier. And this is Templars, with an mm-hmm. E. Let's start with the movement that started earlier, several centuries earlier. What was that movement? I think it was all to do with the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And so this movement with the E, German Templars. Tell us about this movement. This movement, it was created by a man called Christoph Hoffmann in Germany at the first half of the 19th century. And it was to establish the perfect Christian religion in preparation for Christ's promised return. Their name, the Templars, it's a symbol of the rebuilding of the temple. And actually, Christoph Hoffmann wrote, the kingdom of God is a happy state. This is emphasized in all the biblical prophecies and should exist for all people. The prophets point to Jerusalem as the center of the kingdom of God, a happy state. And he also explained that the millennium, by which was meant the conversion of the whole world, and which was the purpose of bringing together God's people, would only take place following Christ's second coming, and that the aim was to gather the children of God in Jerusalem as the central place of all Christianity, the aim and the purpose of the temple society. They focused on Jerusalem, but then how did they end up in Haifa? Yes, their initial thought was to go to Jerusalem. And they actually settled on going to set up their home in Nazareth, which isn't too far from Jerusalem. So they were on their way. And in those days, travel took a a lot longer than it does now. You didn't have (laughs) aeroplanes. So it took them quite a long time to travel across Europe, arrive in Palestine, as it was then. And their aim was to go and set up a community in Nazareth. But they were advised by a missionary not to go to Nazareth because it wasn't an easy place to live. And he suggested you'd be much better to go to Haifa because you've got land that is good for growing food and you've got good travel links because it's got a harbour and all the rest of it. It was much better. So they decided to go to Haifa. Actually, at that time, I'm not sure how much of a harbour there was, but certainly there were possibilities of travelling by boat at that time. And what's the connection of Haifa to the Baha'i faith? Well, what I was going to do, I was going to read you an excerpt from the prologue of the book, because that actually puts it all into context. I don't know if you'd like. Yes, please, let's do that. So this is the prologue of the book. On the 30th of October, 1868, Christoph Hoffmann and George David Hardegg 
arrived with their families by steamer at the port of Haifa in Palestine. They journeyed by land and sea all the way from the German state of Württemberg. And whilst their arrival on the shores of the Holy Land marked the end of a long journey, it was also the beginning of a venture for which they'd spent years preparing, for they were German Templars, and they were on their way to set up a small colony in Nazareth, about 25 miles inland. However, destiny had other plans, and following the advice of the Prussian consul in Beirut and a trusted young Christian missionary who was living in Nazareth, they were persuaded to abandon their original destination and settle in the vicinity of Haifa, where postal connections, travel, and the promise of good land for agriculture were more than enough to tempt them. Two months earlier, on the morning of the 31st of August, another group had arrived at the port of Haifa by steamer, their final destination being the prison city of Acre, which lay a few miles away at the northern end of Haifa Bay. Unlike the German Templars, this earlier group were exiles at the mercy of the Ottoman Empire, their arrival in Palestine marking their fourth and final destination following 15 years of successive banishments from Persia. Their leader, Baha'u'llah, was the founder of the latest of the world's major religions, the Baha'i Faith, and those who shared his banishment were members of his family and a number of his followers. Although there was no apparent connection between these two groups of people arriving in Haifa during the latter half of 1868, the relationship which they established within just a couple of years, despite difficulties of language, suggested that they had more in common than the Templars could ever have imagined. And so the questions arise. Who exactly were the German Templars? And why did their Christian belief inspire them to leave their German homes in order to build a community in Palestine? Who were the Baha'is? What did they believe? And why had they been banished to the prison city of Acre in Palestine? And what connection, if any, could there possibly be between two such diverse groups from such different cultures, one from the East and the other from the West? The German Templars were undoubtedly influenced, as were all Christians at the time, by the eventful and somewhat checkered Christian history which preceded them. And although Christian history per se isn't the subject of this book, the introduction offers a brief overview in order to establish exactly how and why Templar doctrine originated and to help put their story into a wider context. In the process of unfolding this story and in the light of what took place preceding it, we're also in a position to shed light on the mission of Baha'u'llah, for as the book moves forward, it will be seen that the two appear to be inextricably linked. We had just listened to Carolyn Sperry Fox read from the prologue of her book, Seeking a State of Heaven, about the German Templars and their intersection with the Baha'i Faith. Carolyn is a professional musician, author, and painter. Carolyn, is there a story about Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, was actually a guest at one of these Templar homes? 
he actually stayed in one of those homes at one point, and he also had a relationship with Hardegg, who was one of these two men who were the founders of the Templars. Bahá'u'lláh actually wrote a tablet to Hardegg. Carolyn, this is all very interesting work. Do you have any project in the works now? In the last three years, I've written three little books for children. Two of them are already published, and the third one is sort of being worked on at the moment and should come out within the next year anyway, I imagine. And what are the two that you published? The first one is called Little Acorn, and it's based on um, around a quote of Abdu'l-Bahá. And the second one is called Abdu'l-Bahá's Little Brown Cat. And that one, it's really about the last two years of Abdu'l-Bahá's life. He died in, in 1921. And we do know that he had a cat. We don't know much about it. But I decided to write this little story, the story of Abdu'l-Bahá's last two years, through the eyes and ears of his little cat. What's the children's book that's not quite published yet? The one that I'm working on is the illustrations I'm working on at the moment. It's called Lely and the Blue Balloon. Lely, L-E-I-L-I. Lely and the Blue Balloon. And what's that one about? That, again, is based on um, a quote from Abdu'l-Bahá. It's really about how all people are one and the earth is one. But it's through the story of this little girl who is taken at night by this beautiful white bird. It's like a dream, really. She's taken to various places and she's taken to see various things in the world. And right at the end, I shouldn't, no, I shouldn't really let the game away, but right at the end, she's taken quite a long way and she looks down and she sees this blue balloon and she realizes it's the earth. The earth is one. Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carolyn Sperry Fox, a professional musician, playwright, author, and painter. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of Bahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel of Baha'i Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org or call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
They stood up on the mountain top and shouted out with tears in his eyes.
flesh and glad my spirit my spirit my spirit oh god refresh and glad my spirit my spirit my spirit purify my heart my powers I lay all my affairs in thy hand Oh God thou art my God and my refuge my refuge my refuge Oh God thou art my God and my refuge Sorrowful and green, I will be a happy and joyful being. I will no longer be full of anxiety, nor will I let trouble harass me. Anxiety. 
nor will I let trouble harass me.
Having been entrapped in the mesh of its desire, find death itself impotent to resume its flight to the realms whence it A dwelling place upon the dust There's a brown man telling stories. 
Beach, beach.